Hello there. I want to thank everyone who has been listening to or reading CC Life Science. I'm very happy with my experience at Substack. So happy, in fact, that I will likely be moving the Life Science Marketing Radio podcast over here so you can get all of my content in one place. One of the great things about Substack is the possibility of connecting the community, something I've been doing on LinkedIn, but it would be great to get folks communicating with each other on these posts and in threads that only Substack makes possible. I'll talk more about that in the future. The long-term plan is to create more valuable content all in one place while keeping the Life Science Marketing Radio site, probably a name change, as the home for a custom content studio. If you like this podcast or newsletter, please share it with your colleagues. There are more fascinating interviews on the way. Today, I'm talking to Jeff Carmichael. I have known Jeff for a few years through LinkedIn, and today we're going to talk about machine vision, optical type of things, but Jeff, you can describe it better than me. What what would you say is your area of expertise? In a... Uh... Big picture context, imaging. I was going to say digital imaging, but really my imaging days started with film photography. So all aspects of imaging. And just for the record, you're being a a little modest. So you helped me out a lot back in my product marketing days at Chroma before we knew each other through LinkedIn, developing content. And that was my first stab at really developing marketing content. And you helped with that a lot. Oh, thank you. It was my pleasure. In the areas of imaging, uh, I have to ask, do you still do film photography? I don't. Totally off topic. I sort of wish I did, but it is a pain to do. It's rewarding. It, so I actually got into imaging and photography backwards because when I was hired in 1991 by Fred Fay, who I didn't know when he hired me, was a world-renowned physiologist. He had a nature cover, and I think it was 87 or 88, depicting the first ever calcium transients in a live cell, which was a smooth muscle cell. I didn't know anything about that at the time. And one of my tasks as a technician, as a research tech in his lab, was actually to develop film and produce photographic prints. Because back then, accompanying manuscripts to go to peer-reviewed journals were photographs. It was before digital imaging. Even though, so digital imaging was just emerging then and... We actually, in the lab, had these, at the time, very fancy high-end digital imaging microscopes. They were just Zeiss or Nikon stands, but with custom-made CCD chips made by (laughs) MIT's Lincoln Laboratory. Uh, They were, I think they were $100,000. They were one of a kind, and it was a new thing. And it was paid for by grant money, obviously. So we had the digital imaging capability in the microscope and various 
researchers would acquire images and to document them and publish the images. It was an intermediate stage. We would reproduce the images in this little black box attached to the computer. We used these silicon graphics uh, workstations, which at the time Disney used for all their CGI. That was, I think, even before you used the term CGI. And we would have color slide film loaded in, I think it was a, a Konica, an Ulta camera. We would take film photographs of the reproduced images inside this black box that had a rotating filter wheel. So that's how we got the color images. And my job was, in that case, with the color slide film, I didn't do that myself yet. I sent that off to a lab. But when they were black and white micrographs, I would do the film and do the printing. And it wasn't until I had done that for a year or two where I thought, hey, it might be fun to get into photography <laughs> and actually use the <laughs> camera. Um, but so, yeah, so that's, that's how I got into that. And then the digital imaging was just part of the job as I got more into the microscopy there. I had never done fluorescence microscopy before working at UMass. Very few people did because it was a niche thing in 1991. It wasn't a widespread, you know, a tool in everyone's toolkit like it is today in biological researchers skills, skill sets. Yeah. Color science and optics has applications probably all of us use all the time, but we're not always thinking about. So give us some examples just to get people tuned into the kinds of things we're thinking about. Then we're going to go more technical. Sure. Well, I, actually this, you could go deep dive really technical into color science and color technology as well, but as a segue from what we were just talking about, I don't think many people paid too much attention to the sort of miracle that produces color technology in a digital device because we were so used to using color film, which itself is a, a, a technological masterpiece to, to balance the various photosensitive pigments that would result in images that we perceive with our human visual system to look the same as the scene that we took a picture of. Um, so when digital cameras came along, we're just, well, this is just another color <laughs> device. It's digital instead of film. But Right, of course it works. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, the, what, it, what, it, what these digital sensors are in the day they were ccds and now they've almost all become cmos they're just silicon based light detectors they don't they don't see color per se they just detect light and they have a spectral sensitivity range typically i don't know roughly 380 or 400 nanometers very similar to our human vision up to beyond our vision silicon can detect up to about 1100 nanometers typically because of other elements in the optical pathway, 400-ish to maybe 800-ish, something like that, nanometers. And it's a Gaussian spectral sensitivity curve where it's highest sensitivity in the greens in the middle. 
my point is that's just black and white when you look at what that sensor sees um, because it's integrating all of those wavelengths together. The reason they produce a color photograph is because that whole pixel array on the sensor is covered by what we call a buyer filter array, which is colored filters covering each and every pixel and the common consumer version of a color camera has arrays of repeating four, four pixel arrays as a, in a quadrant. Two greens, a red, and a blue. So each, each pixel on the readout of the color camera is actually made up of four pixels on the sensor, which is why monochrome cameras typically have better resolution because they don't have these mm. color filters and they have four times as many pixels per one pixel of a color camera. But what happens in the color camera is the, each of these individual pixels is part of a circuit that the electrical engineer, who, when he designs this thing, he, all the blue signals are treated one way, the green signals in another, and the red, red signals in another, and they're recombined in a way that mimics the way we perceive color. So color is one thing. Wavelengths and spectral imaging is another thing. So the, you break up light into a spectrum. We're perceiving these colors the way our human visual system sees them, you know, the typical rainbow. Um, but those are interpreted, first of all, that we have three. It's, it's also interesting because R, G, and B color filters in the camera are sort of loosely, we could talk about this for hours, loosely related to our three different types of color cones. So when, when we look at the world in daylight, using our what we call photopic vision. Once, once lighting gets bright enough beyond dawn, when the sun comes up, it's largely our cones that do the seeing for us. And using that photopic vision, we've got three different, the S and the M and the L cones. Each of those integrates whatever it is it sees. So our brain has ultimately sent signals a number, really, you could think of it as a number, a value, an amount, a discrete analog amount of signal for each of these receptors. Now, and the visual system has to recombine these in a way that evolution has deemed makes us fit so that we can detect what we need to detect, run away from what we need to run away from. And it doesn't necessarily correspond to strictly correspond to physics in terms of wavelengths. So what I mean is you can combine, color, combine light and colors in such a way on an instrument that we cannot reproduce in our visual system. So there is that we have a, a, a roughly a green, roughly a reddish, roughly a bluish 
cone. But there's no, there's no way, you can't see a reddish green. There is no such color called reddish green. You can combine those colors and an instrument can see that, can detect that. The human visual system does this funky little trick where there's this property called opponency, where <laughs> when we see red, we're at the same time subtracting green. And this is done after, after our eyes detect something on the way to the part of the brain that perceives it as a color. Um, there's all these sort of funky tricks that our visual system does so that we can see color. In order for camera manufacturers, like the color camera we were just talking about, or lighting manufacturers, to be able to produce a color that they're confident human beings will see as the intended color, there needs to be a system for doing that. Because, like I said, there's no direct one-to-one -one correlation between the, the wavelength spectrum and our vision. It's close, but there's wizardry going on between there. And the system that we use to do this, sort of bizarrely, is, is a century old now. It dates all the way back to the 1920s. And the data that was used to compile the, the database for the system is comprised of 17 individuals. <laughs> one, one study that looked at 10 individuals and one study that looked at seven individuals. I think it was 1928 and 1931 when standards for color technology needed to be developed because red, yellow, and green signals for railroads and for highways, which were coming to be a thing, traffic controls needed to be standardized so that the red and the green and the yellow signals would all be the same brightness, so you could all see them in the afternoon or at noon sitting at a stoplight, so that the colors appeared the same to you everywhere you were. Um, and there was an organization called, uh, in English, it's the, the International Commission uh, on Illumination. And like a lot of things, it was a, a, a French, international French commission back then. So I think it's, it's the CIE, the, the Commission International Declarage, um, which standardized how we detect color and how color is reproduced. So it's the, yeah. the CIE colors. And, and it, the original and still used today standard is called the 1931 CIE Standard Observer. There's an X-bar function, a Y-bar function, and, and a Z-bar function. And they correspond to the transformation of how our eyes see to the lights that we use to see them. And that was 1931, and it's still the basis 
for what we use today for most imaging applications. And it was all from 17 random individuals in England <laughs> in the 1920s. It's, it's kind of fascinating that it works. Yeah. So I think what you're talking about is this graph I've seen, for example, like if you're going to maybe calibrate a monitor. Or, exactly. Or um, yep. for broadcast TV, like you, your color spectrum needs to fit within a certain thing. And Yep. Yeah, it's a yeah. chromaticity diagram. And there are different yeah. color spaces. So you refer to these as color spaces. Right. So there's the yeah. Adobe space. There's the sRGB space, the yep. CIE lab space. Um, Got it. I'm familiar with that because I recently, well, I've been working on a movie that's almost done. That's a totally different subject. But when I was early into the filming of it, I'm thinking, oh, do I need to think about like how my colors come out here, which probably is not necessary for what I'm doing, but I know what you're talking about. Let's talk about remote sensing. Now we're going to get into the, the vision and, and why the colors matter and technology bordering on AI, maybe for decision-making for folks who don't know what talk about what remote sensing is and how it's used. Writ large, it's, it encompasses a lot of different applications. It's basically literally what the name suggests. Um, it's detecting something remotely. Oftentimes, uh, probably the most established application is imaging of environmental, environmental features from satellites that have sensors it's multispectral imaging. They have sensors that are filtered to only see a part of the spectrum of light. And it's been known for a long time, for probably at least 50 years, that in agriculture, you could focus on certain parts of the spectrum which characterized certain features. So chlorophyll, for instance. Um, chlorophyll is what makes leaves green. It's what drives photosynthesis and allows plants to grow and carbon dioxide to be, to be used. And it's got characteristic absorption in the far red. And what remote sensing has blossomed into, so you can use that, by the way, as a rough measure, the chlorophyll content or the signal that characterizes what the chlorophyll content might be as an indication of biomass, how much green foliage is there. And as, as remote sensing has evolved and become more sophisticated, lots of different algorithms have been developed where depending on what characteristic it is that you're looking at, um, you might look at a narrow slice of the green part of the spectrum or a narrow slice of the blue or a narrow slice of the red or the, the near-infrared is even divided into many subtypes. So there's, there's a, a narrow band called the red edge, which could be around 700 up to maybe 720. 
And the way you manipulate these signals, a camera, a multispectral imaging system will detect several of these, depending on which ones you need. And an algorithm will take the, say, the red uh, minus the near-infrared divided by the red plus the near-infrared, or some variation on a theme. And in that case, what you're looking at is a, the normalized difference vegetation index, the NDVI index, which is the most widely used one. But I was looking the other day at ind indices used in viticulture. <laughs> and what did there's, I'm looking at it right now. There's a, a, a paper that I have because I'm certainly no viticulture expert. So, so vineyards growing grapes for wine. There are 62 different indices that have been documented in peer-reviewed research studying the health of vineyards, vineyard crops. Some of these detect levels of moisture, some of these detect biomass, some of these de might detect various types of infestation or blight. And when you put all these together, the, it tells the vineyard owner where, which parts of the vineyard might be most in need of watering, which ones might be most in need of pesticide or weeding, because you can pretty exquisitely, if you use the right indices and you have good enough detection equipment, good enough cameras, you can distinguish between, certainly between weeds and your plant of interest, you can distinguish between different types of oak trees. If, if you're an environmental scientist and you're studying the canopy, the, the leaf canopy of the top of a forest, these are all different applications that typically are done with drones equipped with multispectral imaging systems. And you can imagine the work that is saved and the money that is saved and the amount of crops that are saved when you don't have to rely only on driving around or walking around to physically inspect things. If you've got thousands or tens of thousands of acres and you can survey them with a drone or a small aircraft, it allows you to focus your resources where it's needed most, and you can either salvage your crop or simply increase the productivity of your crop. So you get as many bushels per acre of whatever it is you're growing for relatively small expense. Right. Um, yeah. And I then think, other. I mean, uh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say you're probably going to go on in that, but like. Um, the benefits for agriculture, forest management for one thing, long-term studies related to climate change kinds oh, of yeah, data, all of that. and even even down to like if you own a vineyard, I can imagine, and I'm not a enologist either. Maybe you select what rows of your crop, for example, to blend different ways based on what you know about how they grew, what the moisture content and so on was. So you can basically optimize your crop, whatever it is. 
you know, all along the way doing what you can to get more of it. Yeah. Well, I'm certainly no viticulture expert either, but I, I, I'm sure that they use a similar approach when rotating crops so they can demonstrate the best, the most efficient method of rotating crops. And even things like, I think, grazing with, with dairy cattle, um, you want to rotate the fields that the pastures that they graze. And I think there are different approaches for doing that. And if you can use remote sensing to measure how well they're doing it year to year, what's best for you in your particular climate, your particular environment, because it's not going to be the same for someone in Montana as it is for someone in Vermont. Right. Yeah. You would call that a type of machine vision, would you not? Or is that completely different? The image analysis... That's a good question. So I, I would, but the, the sort of more canned standard definition of machine vision is using an automated vision system or a vision system to automate an industrial process. So I, I think broadly it is machine vision, and I, I, I think – Typically, the reason I'm, I'm stumbling on that is because in machine vision, the lighting system is often one of the two most important aspects of machine vision. So the, the detector, the camera, in conjunction with the optics, the, the imaging lens, and the lighting are the, the two important actual imaging pieces. In remote sensing, it's interesting you mention that because remote sensing is actually divided into two types. There's active remote sensing and there's passive remote sensing. The, the agricultural stuff, anything that's done outdoors is by definition passive because you can't control the sunlight or the cloud. Cover. Right, yeah. So lighting is going to be variable all the time. Yeah, it's ambient light. That doesn't mean necessarily that it's not machine vision. Um, but active remote sensing, which is LIDAR, maybe touches a little closer to machine vision because you are using a bespoke um, dedicated light source. So, so LIDAR, light distance and ranging, always involves an onboard laser or laser diode source that is emitted and reflects off of the surroundings that you're trying to look at, much like radar is, except you're using light wavelengths that are much shorter in wavelength than radar is, than microwaves or radio waves. That's usually done by time of flight. It literally measures the amount of time from when a laser pulse is emitted to when it reflects off of a surface and reaches the camera. So it returns where it started. And the difference in each point in the scene and how long it takes for that pulse, that laser pulse to return to the detector tells the detector or tells the software that's analyzing the signal how far away that surface is. So it 
arranges this, it forms a 3D point cloud of the area in front of you by bouncing signals, laser signals, off of whatever it is, a pedestrian crossing the road in the case of <laughs> advanced driver assistance systems. And yeah, and in case, there, there was a, a very interesting series on the PBS Nova show recently um, where following the tragic fire at the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris, oh, yeah. um, there was a, a, a LIDAR... Uh, imaging project where the entire in, interior of the cathedral, the intact part, I actually, I, I think mo- the interior of the cathedral was all intact. It was all mapped out to sub-millimeter resolution so that for future generations, um, the exact dimensions and shape Angles, all the, all the geometry of of the of the cathedral would be documented. Um, so things like that, architectural documentation, environmental documentation. Say you want to map a small. Say you want to say you want to image or or document the the geometry of a park of, you know, small parkland. You want to know the density of the trees. You want to know how big they are. You want to know where the various statues or fountains are in the park. You can create a 3D point cloud, which actually has all the dimensions. You could photograph it, but the photograph is only a representation. It doesn't have dimensional data in it. You'd have to feed that into some sort of algorithm. LIDAR is by definition that data. It has all that data in it. So you can map out the dimensions of just about any scene. And you can also use LIDAR in the same way that I mentioned, you can use the the visual, the, the passive remote sensing of measuring the canopy of a forest. If you fly over with a drone, you can map that canopy either with passive or active remote sensing. You can use LIDAR or you can measure the reflectivity of the daylight. Either way will work. So there's really very broad applications. More and more, you had mentioned, I think, earlier, um, climate change and uh, remote sensing is increasingly, it's used to map glaciers and you know, the, the extent of glaciers and how fast they're melting. Um, photography, photography is used generally, I think, probably broadband white light photography is often used to just measure extent, but I believe multispectral imaging in remote sensing is also used. And there are also, I think you can detect things like algae blooms, in the ocean. Remote sensing is done underwater as well to inspect the hulls of ships, yeah. to inspect things like coral reefs. So it, it's almost unlimited, the usefulness of, of remote sensing. So when I look for uh, machine vision uses in life science, I got a lot of use cases where 
they were looking at, are these tubes full? Are the tubes in the rack in the right place? Do they have their caps on for like high volume analytical testing? Just making sure that physically everything is as it should be before it goes into an analyzer so robots can pick out tubes and they're going to get a result because they know there's enough sample there, for example. Are there machine vision applications at the biology end of the spectrum? Forgive the pun, but like where besides or including perhaps like anatomical pathology where machines are analyzing so yes and no. I guess it, it a lot of this depends on definitions. So and this is interesting to me because there there are, there are some sort of dichotomies between sort of industrial machine vision related, you know, automation and what I consider life science imaging that are interesting. So in terms of what I know, and it's not a lot uh, of machine vision in life sciences, Mo most of what I've encountered in my travels in the machine vision world have been what you've described. To me, that's not, li that, that's not a life science application. That's a machine vision application for a product that happens to get used in life science. To me, right. life science imaging, machine vision imaging, would be something like oh, say you're developing a disease model and you need to follow it or you're doing developmental or embryology type work and you need to follow it over a long time course. It's got to be hands off. You don't ever interact with it. You don't take it out of a culture hood. You leave it where it is in its perfect environment and it's completely automated. I know that exists, but it's not widespread. And I think part of the reason is because in, in, in the industrial world, things are so standardized and repeated. In life science research, you don't <laughs> typically do the same experiment many times. You get some results, you see if you can reproduce it, then you're on to the next thing. It's almost... What's the word I'm trying to think of? Counterindicated in a way that right. you the could use the components over again, but you don't. Yeah. But you'd have to have someone come in and integrate it as a system all over again when you want to change it to do something. Now, perhaps someone out there is hearing this and thinking, Jeff, you idiot, we do this all the time. And maybe someone does, but it's not widespread like it is in industrial automation. And what's also really interesting to me about this is the, the very first thing I noticed coming from fluorescence microscopy and, and life science imaging coming to machine vision was other than my first reaction to machine vision, which is this all seems vaguely familiar. It's basically glorified studio photography. I mean, not exactly, <laughs> but it's along those lines. It's quantitative or as studio photography, you're making things subjectively appeal to the way humans want to see things. Machine vision has nothing to do with that. It's looking at data. But the techniques are similar. The other thing I noticed was I, when I was looking at lighting suppliers in machine vision, which is very important, one of the most important things, again, in machine vision is lighting. 
and controlling the lighting. There are several companies that dominate the LED lighting supplier space. And LEDs have become, they have been for a long time now, the dominant type of light source used for lighting and machine vision applications. They don't get hot. They use little energy. Um, they can pump out a lot of light in a very small wavelength range. You can overdrive them so that they cycle really fast and can do very fast imaging. What I noticed was there, there are these companies that make what, what I would call, coming from biology, LED light engines. They don't manufacture the LEDs themselves. They assemble them into instruments, into lighting modules that you can control. And they have their own software that they use to control them. And there's a handful of these companies. And if you look in life science, there's a similar sort of mirror image of LED light engine suppliers that also package LEDs into instruments that do what you want them to do, typically in a microscope. And, I mean, they're uh, conceptually the same thing. There, there are definite details that vary, important details in how they do it. But it's almost like they don't know each other exists. It was kind of odd, and I thought, there's some opportunities here that for either the machine vision folks to move into life science or the life science folks to move into machine vision, and it's happening very slowly. Whereas with sensors, with cameras, that happened quickly. There are cameras that used to be largely in the life science space, camera manufacturers, that now make cameras for everything. Part of that has been acquisition. Camera companies and life science bought camera companies and machine vision and vice versa. But there, is, there seems to be something a little bit different in the lighting space. And I noticed the same thing with AI. Because we you and I were talking about artificial intelligence a little while ago. And there's a company, for an example, there's a company called Landing AI in machine vision, which is a really intriguing company because their approach from what I gather, is instead of focusing on huge amounts of data like Google Brain used, in fact, the founder of Landing AI was the founder of Google Brain, Google uses, has billions of users that if you're thinking about a search, the search engine, it's, they all do the same thing. It's all text. They're all looking for different things, but conceptually, it's the same thing. They're, they're entering words, and Google searches a database of words. And in that respect, it's not that complex. It's complex because there are so many words and so many sources and so many contexts, and that's the AI part that sorts that. But it's all pretty much the same application, whereas Landing AI realizes that in machine vision, the applications vary tremendously. There are, for, for instance, if your application is inspection and you're detecting defects, whether it's on a, on a, on a semiconductor or whatever, you might mistake a cosmetic defect that's meaningless for an actual defect. And the training has to be very application-specific in that case. And, and, 
it sounds like their idea at Landing AI is training potentially tens of thousands of different application training AI in tens of thousands of different applications, but with a relatively small, high-quality data set. So you don't need billions. You just need really good data that, that what you label each thing, wh whether it's a defect or whatever the label is that you apply, is high-quality and isn't misconstrued. Um, that's landing AI. In life sciences, a company called Path AI. <laughs> they they like to use the word AI in their names, and it's short for pathology. Of course, yeah. <laughs> pathology AI, and likewise, it's not like Google search engine. It's also very complex because a tumor or or whatever it is you're looking at could assume many different morphologies or phenotypes, different cells in different individuals, combinations of cells, ratios of one cell type to another, it goes on and on and on. And they also, I think, are developing algorithms tuned to a particular disease or a particular histologic identification. So they're both doing similar things, but they're not, it's not like a, a generic AI company. One's focusing on machine vision, one's focusing on life science, even though they're both looking at application-specific, complex application use cases. That's intriguing to me, and where that ends up, I, I don't know. I, I hope it doesn't all get resolved simply because companies buy other companies and you just have conglomerates and acquisitions and now there's no more split because we all own all the companies hopefully there's a better way for it to resolve than that but we'll see that's the resolution i most imagine what's the alternative i have no idea honestly i mean besides staying on their own path and focusing on particular markets but don't get me wrong there's nothing wrong with either lighting suppliers or AI um, providers, AI platform providers with being in their own sort of lane, so to speak. There's nothing wrong with that. It just seems odd to me because usually things mix and sort of come out in the wash in the end. So one resolution, I don't know, could be that they borrow from each other on their particular AI approaches. One, in machine vision, they might be using a certain way of approaching AI that they hadn't thought of in, in, in the life science and vice versa. Right. That could be the way that they merge, like in music. You borrow from each other. Yep. That's what I'm imagining. What would be the motivator for them to figure out what other people are doing is you get that there's the value in them blending but if everybody gobbles up and it all gets too consolidated, then maybe that reduces the innovation. So there's probably some balance in there, right? Yeah. But you got to believe that knowing another approach might work. I don't know enough about it to know, oh, these guys should definitely be looking at this because of whatever. But Yeah. Yeah. In general, I'm drawn to technologies that 
rely on imaging or, or, or image detection in whatever way. There was a, a, a company in San Diego that I worked with when I was at Chroma called Cell IDX, which developed this really this interesting and, and pretty novel technology where they use haptens. And, and most of us, I think when we think of haptens, they, they were fairly low affinity in the past and, and, and never really took off. But what they're doing is, first of all, they're for pathology largely, they're finding antibodies that are really high affinity antibodies, not most monoclonal, but clones picked out from ra rabbit polyclonal antisera. And those are apparently the highest affinity antibodies that the natural world produces. So they're using those as primaries, but their detection technology relies on not, say, a, a, a mouse anti-rabbit or a goat anti-rabbit antibody. It relies on labeling the primary with a hapten and going in with something that recognizes that hapten with, I think it's like 10 to the 15th affinity. So it's really high. And... At first, I was excited about working with these guys because it was for fluorescence and they were looking for more channels, more filters, as a chromo is a filter manufacturer. And we were trying to find the best filter combinations for them to add more fluorescence channels. But it turns out, and we knew it at the time, but it, you try anyway, that typically pathologists are they're very risk averse and they're often old school in that they have tried and true ways that they've been using forever and fluorescence isn't typically one of them. And it's hmm. not the most accessible technology for huge numbers of pathological specimens. I gotcha. So what they yeah. do is they still rely on the chromogenic analysis. But it's not your grandfather's chromogenic. It's not hematoxylin and eosin. I'm sure they use that, but there are chromogenic labels, four, five, six colors that you can conjugate with antibodies and do slide scanning and get the same multi-spectral analysis that you get with fluorescence, but with purely chromogenic means. And that's I think that's catching on with them. And that's intriguing to me just because I'm still trying to wrap my brain around how to optimize the spectral recognition and discrimination of colored. We're back now to the whole color science and color vision <laughs> and color camera thing. Are filters as important in chromogenic discrimination as they are in fluorescence, clearly not as important, but probably useful because the filters that come in color cameras, um, they're 
I don't know. I, to me, they're sloppy. They're the standard Gaussian shaped that that can easily correspond with the the CIE color spaces. But if some enterprising camera manufacturer, I think this would work, used much higher quality filters on the pixels, square wave, narrow band, or even wide, but very nice square wave, non-overlapping filters, you could probably detect many colors with very high fidelity in this pathological approach with they're just using chromogens. That's the sort of imaging problem that really intrigues me. Yeah. Well, we could go on, I'm sure, but I'm going to thank you so much, Jeff Carmichael, for educating me on color science, machine vision, remote sensing, and so on. Thanks so much for your time. Oh, you're welcome, Chris. It was it was great. Thanks thanks for asking me to come on. My pleasure. Funny story about this episode. I recorded this episode a few weeks ago, and just yesterday, I was talking to a friend, and she said, "Oh, you could uh, you could do a whole newsletter or podcast on sensors." And in my mind, I'm going, "No, not really." And then <laughs> I start to edit this episode this morning, and I'm thinking, "Oh yeah." I've got my first episode right here. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed it. Um, you probably noticed there's no music in this podcast. That is not by design. Um, I just haven't thought about it. So if you think I need some music, make suggestions for the kind of vibe you think would work and let me know. And I will talk to you in a couple weeks. Bye-bye.